Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 70,000 factories closed since China joined the WTO. 70,000 factories. So when I used to give that statistic, I used to talk about it. And I always thought it was a typo. I said it has to be a typo. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, Donald Trump wants to re-industrialize America. Is it the promise that he's going to see him back in the White House? And is this a bit of populist politics that actually makes sense? After all, hasn't the pandemic and all the other geopolitical problems shown that supply chains do need to be reduced? And doesn't it make more sense than ever to make more at home? How realistic is it to re-industrialize? That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So surely the last few years have taught us that long, complex supply chains are a danger to any economy. We can't, shouldn't slavishly follow Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage, where we limit ourselves to producing what we are best at and we buy everything else in, because what happens when everything else isn't available to buy in? So Steve, uh, a few reasons why supply chains aren't working as well as they were uh, I've got three. You might have four so or, or more. Number one is geopolitics. So Russia and Iran are doing their best to make the West suffer. Obviously, if you listen to the latest Y-Curve podcast, it's all about how the Houthis and Hamas uh, are almost operating arms of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So trade through the Red Sea is down by at least two thirds. Insurance underwriters are asking 1% of the value of any vessel that goes, per passage that is. Uh, so from a uh, you know, $100 million uh, vessel, that's a uh, million dollars, which has got to be paid in insurance. Uh, and of course, we know that Ukraine, uh, what that war did to Europe's gas supply. So geopolitics, number one. Number two, demographic change. So a country becomes richer. People have less sex for whatever reason. You would have thought you got rich; you'd have more sex with more people, wouldn't you? But well, no, we have less. If you go into Davos, you do, but that's that's not for the rest of us. <laughs> is that what goes on at Davos? Is it? Is that, uh, what, is what, what happens in Davos? Secret- did you not see that? There's a whole set of, uh, of uh, tweets coming out from sex workers in um, in Davos saying they're all totally booked up. <laughs> <laughs> no. So we we, we 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 know that the elite have our interest in hand. Right. Okay. Pardon me. Not in well, there we somebody are. else's hand. Maybe yeah. they. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that's the problem. Rich people. Rich people. Rich people are having sex with their, with prostitutes and they're taking precautions. Whichever way, uh, we've got less babies anyway. So the population ages and it's less productive. So China has stopped creating workers. So it's going to be able to supply less to the West, uh, even if they could get it through the the Red Sea, because their fertility rate was two and a half births per woman in 1990. Now it's down to one. So they used to hide their second child. Now the second child is non-existent. So uh, the changing demographics is a, is another factor. Uh, just you know that we've the country we relied on perhaps will be able to produce less. And thirdly, your favourite climate. Reportedly, Indeed. the 16 biggest container ships produce more pollution than all cars in the world. 
And uh, that's obviously getting worse right now because traffic is getting diverted from the Red Sea. So the journey from Rotterdam to Singapore, for example, is 4,000 nautical miles longer. And I don't have the figures to hand, but the number of vessels going through the Red Sea is huge or was huge. So the amount of you know trade that's on our high seas is extraordinarily large. So all of that is reasons why supply chains aren't working. We've got geopolitics getting in the way. Uh, the countries that are originating those products, you know, perhaps they're, they're less reliable because they're going to become less productive because of demographic change. And then, you know, climate's putting, uh, you know, all, all of this in, in jeopardy anyway because we just will not be able to transport stuff those long distances because the pollution is ruining the planet. That's three. I don't know if you can add more as to why we need I to reduce... I can add one more. Yeah, Okay. I can I can add one more in the uh, in the climate farm, and that's what's happening in the Panama Canal. Yes, because you know Drying the up. Panama Canal is becoming unnavigable mm. because, of course, the water in the Panama relies upon lakes. Uh, you, you, you know, either side of an ocean, you've got to go up. So you're relying upon rainfall and, and rivers and lakes to provide the water that goes into the locks between the Atlantic and the Pacific. And there is now not enough water turning up. So uh, they, they have to wait for longer for the locks to get enough water to enable the ship to pass through. So the Panama Canal is also blocking up. And that means, again, just like you know, cutting off the Red Sea means navigation between Asia, where the goods are being made, and Europe, uh, where they're being uh, consumed, that's knocked off. You've still got the obviously the Asia to America route landing at San Francisco and things like that. But if the West wants to export from the East Coast to China, forget it. Uh, the, 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 you now, rather than going through the Panama Canal, which makes it quite a short journey, you've got to go around the whole of South Africa. So th- and uh, welcome to Tierra del Fuego, where, where, of course, I haven't noticed a container port for some time. I wonder why. So the, all of this points to, you know, Donald Trump being right on something, and it's possibly what will win in the uh, the election again, is the need to reindustrialize. It's as clear as day, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the whole... I mean, I, I refer to this. This goes as I've got a long history of working in this area, not being noticed, of course, because I'm not a mainstream economist. Therefore, I don't get published in the American Economic Review and things like that. But when you look at what actually drove the whole uh, pressure for uh, relocation of production from first world countries to third world, it had bugger all to do with comparative advantage, had an enormous amount to do with exploiting low wages uh, because I mentioned this a few times on the podcast, but I was in the Shenzhen free trade zone in China in 1981-82 while it was being built. And we had a meeting with the uh, executives there. And that was the first thing I saw when I was in China that made me think this is going to work. And that was they were offering American corporations incredibly low wages, much lower environmental costs, et cetera, et cetera, to relocate production with just one catch. And that was they A, they had to have a Chinese partner. And B, within five years, the Chinese partner had to own 50% of the business, regardless of how much money the Chinese partner put in. Um, so you can imagine the incredible difference between American wages and Chinese wages that American capitalists were willing to screw American workers to shut their factories down in America and build them in China instead. That is now disappearing because, of course, China's wages have risen dramatically because China's won out of this big time and it's now become you know, the most industrialized country on the planet, but it is no longer going to be able to, um, you know, the Americans can't sell to China. China can't sell via the Panama Canal. It can sell by San Francisco. But all this stuff 
uh, was just you know a recipe for exploiting the workers, and once the exploitation gap was gone, yeah. that advantage disappeared. The cost difference is changing, is what you're saying, isn't it? So wages are going up, and the cost yeah. of transport is going up, and that's before we look at climate change, and then we start to say, well, we've got to impose some sort of tax, higher tax, to try and save the planet. So you know, by all of those, which is sort of like almost like those factors that I outlined. I mean, all of those are adding to the cost. So the advantage of uh, of these long supply chains is disappearing, even if we, you know, even before we think, well, maybe it's the right thing to do. It, the business model is falling apart. Absolutely, and therefore, as you say, we've got to reindustrialize. But that mm. <laughs> that becomes, you know, I'm sure you've got the numbers on this, but it becomes incredibly difficult to do because guess what? America doesn't have lots of anymore, and that's skilled machine tool uh, users and manufacturers of machine tools. That's all happening yeah. in China now. So they've outsourced the intelligence they need to be able to actually do the reindustrialization in the first place. With well, the it's going to take of, time, isn't it? It's going to take a lot of time. You, you have your exceptions, of course. I mean, if you look at, and this is one reason, you know, I like what Musk is doing on the engineering front. Uh, Tesla and SpaceX have both taken in-house production uh, and have ignored not even they're not even outsourcing to third world countries they're trying to avoid buying from other, from the non from other suppliers there are things like they buy like the twelve and a half thousand ton presses they're using for making the tesla bodies these days from an italian firm which is the one that developed these incredible presses but generally speaking they're doing as much of it as in-house as possible the rest of american yeah, good production, old-fashioned vertical integration exactly the way it worked yeah, wasn't it yeah yeah, the, yeah. The, and in fact Companies would buy other companies to 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 en- en- enhance that vertical integration rather than the, the the outsource model, which has become so de rigueur. Yeah, and and and, the, the, and another problem with the outsourcing model is that if you're relying upon a whole lot of suppliers for different parts, you've got to do the initial um, design to enable those parts to be put together into a product. Uh, but then if you and then also that supplier will often use those parts for other companies as well. Uh, and then if you want to say, well, we want to change the design, I'm sorry, rather difficult to do. And uh, mm. I mean, I remember way, way back when you and I were both working in the computer and uh, trade in, in Australia. I was working with an Australian company and its name, I'll hopefully drag the name of the back of my brain cells at some point, but they were making circuit boards. And they said the hardest thing to do, in talking of circuit board, the hardest bit to do was to get an exterior external firm to bend the metal properly on the back so you could plug the screws in. Uh, so it, no. it, it's crazy how outsourcing means you haven't got control over the manufacturing process. And when you haven't got that, your days are numbered. But that could change. It, it will just take time. But of course, it's got to start with energy, hasn't it? I mean, you've got to become, uh, if you're know, if you going to become a self-sufficient country as much as possible, you've got to become energy self-sufficient, which is perhaps doable for all the wrong reasons in the United States. But uh, some government numbers for the UK. In 1990, we produced, this is uh, millions of tonnes of oil equivalent, is the way of measuring. MCOE, yeah, I know that yeah. one well. So yeah. 220 million tonnes of oil equivalent in 1990. Uh, that's how much energy was produced domestically. That's now down to 110 million, so it's almost halved. Basically, obviously, because we don't produce as much oil, gas and coal, which was a chunk of that 220 million. So primary electricity, bioenergy and waste. So this is largely the the renewables number is 31 million tons in 2020. So if we want to get back to where we were uh, in 1990, following this new route, we are 15 percent of the weight there. 
Uh, but we need to get 100% of the way there if we are going to have a totally self-sufficient economy, don't we? And and that's a big ask. I mean, the, I mean, the energy is absolutely vital. It's one thing that I know mainstream economics completely ignores, and it's one of the many reasons it's a it's an intellectual waste of space. Um, but it, you can look at all countries like Japan, which, of course, doesn't have much of its own domestic energy sources apart from nuclear, um, and then it has to import coal and oil and gas from the rest of the world and has still done extremely well. But of course, what you're going to face out of this is rising prices for that energy. So I think in this particular case, when you're talking of relocation of production, the main thing is manufacturing now. And that's both the end, uh, you have to be training the engineers who can produce the machinery that produces the machinery that makes the products. And this is uh, that, that, that that's an increase in the technological level and unavoidably that's going to involve skilled workforce. And if you haven't been training that workforce, you are really behind an eight ball. Right, and I do want to talk about that, but you think you can do that even if you are a big net importer of energy? So long as energy isn't uh, too expensive, and that's what's going to happen. It is going to well, become too expensive. Mm, you know? yeah. I, I've got to give you one of my favourites. I'm you know, writing a new book called Rebuilding Economics from the Top Down for the last four months. And as, as part of that, I'm trashing the neoclassicals on how they analyse money. And they don't want to talk about banks creating money. They prefer to treat banks as intermediaries. And there's a paper by a couple of French economists, Far and Rebash or some pair of name like that, talking about the loanable funds model and saying, so long as we ignore uncertainty, the simpler loanable funds model can be used with no loss of generality. So long as we assume no uncertainty and no That's generality, <laughs> there are a bunch of morons. <laughs> well, just a couple of easy things to dismiss. So let's talk about making stuff then, uh, mm. manufacturing. So the UK uh -huh. has a deficit of, these are the last year's figures, I think, £217 billion on trade in goods offset by £150 billion on trade in services. This is 2022. Uh, so the overall trade deficit was 67 billion in 2022, but you know let's forget about the services side of it because because we're talking about reindustrializing. That 217 billion deficit in goods is the big number, isn't it? That's 3,200 pounds per man, woman, and child. Uh, we'd want to get that down to zero, but that is a I mean that is an extraordinarily large ask. It's huge, it, 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 and this is the like the the big mistake. I mean, the mistake of relocation, um, as you said, relocation only works if, if if the stable conditions under which you set that out continue, and those stable conditions include the huge wage differential and the climate. Well, the wage differential is disappearing, and the climate is going to do the same thing. So it is no longer possible to exploit that that particular avenue. But the the move across from Maggie, Maggie Thatcher added to that by saying. Uh, arguing that you know services are going to be the growth area, manufacturing is passe, uh, so we're going to have services, services exports taking over the the loss of manufacturing local production and you know having to import rather than export manufacturing. Well, it's come a bollocks, hasn't it? It has, and at the same time, we're all going, oh, we've got to get productivity up, <laughs> and it's hard to get productivity up in the in the service sector. It's easy to get it in the manufacturing sector. Well, so, uh, yeah. but to do that, obviously, you've got to invest. Well, manufacturing. I mean, this this is one of the other furfies which annoys the hell out of me because when you talk about what they call labour productivity, what that really is when it's measured is the ratio of of, 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 of production, GDP, to the number of workers you've hired. And it isn't that workers are becoming more productive over time. You know, little, little, you know, we've got much more industrious workers now than we had in 1920. Nonsense. What we have is those semi-skilled and unskilled workers are working with far more sophisticated machines. 
and it's the machines that are taking in energy and turning that energy and raw materials into useful useful goods. Um, and it's, so it's actually the machinery you've got to improve. Right. And again, you're behind the eight ball. Yeah, maybe you, you are, but maybe you're not. And I want to investigate that a bit more when we when we come back, because of course the world is changing and the machines that were used to make machines five years ago will be very different to the machines that are used to make machines in five years' time, if you see what I mean. So, mm-hmm. you know, the world changes. Do we just need to hop on at a most appropriate point? And in fact, um, I'm, I'm saying everything I wanted to say after the break. Um, but, you well, know, let's do let's we, have the do break we, and you can say it again. Exactly. And again, take a break. We'll be back in a second. It's the Debunking Economics Podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, I almost uh, stole my own thunder there, didn't I, just before the break, <laughs> about talking about what we're going to talk about next. But this idea that, you know, we are so far behind the eight ball Uh, that it's going to take a lot of catching up. Is that really the case? Because you've made the point a couple of times now about, you know, we don't have the machines that are needed to reindustrialize or even the machines that make the machines. But uh, the world is changing. What we are producing now is being changed by technology. You know, we've got 3D printing and all that sort of stuff. Is Is the machines that we used five years ago, I mean, are they a bit redundant? And are we in actually in an advantageous situation where we don't have the legacy? So if we invest in an industry that we feel that we, you know, we can really grow in, could we have the advantage that we're going to have the latest technology? And, you know, some of the Asian countries which have been working in this space for a long time don't have that advantage. Well, you, you don't have the – you've got to have trained engineers. You've got to have people who, who mm. you know, know their physics, know how to apply it, and and have had the practice in building up this technology and and building stuff with incredible accuracy. So, you, you at the moment, if England, the UK wanted to become a manufacturing hub once more, it would need to import the various, you know, the, the 3D, the machines that make the 3D printers that make the products. They'd need to be importing those from other countries because the skill where base... The, where, where are those machines made now? I'm, I'm guessing a lot of this actually would be in America. So America has an advantage mm. on that front. Japan as well. So the countries which have maintained an industrial uh, foundation, unlike the UK, still train the engineers. Uh, they have an advantage there. But China... Uh, so, I mean, I, we'd actually have to, have to take a look because I haven't looked at the actual numbers on, you know, who makes um, machine tools these days, where those machine tools are made, 
uh, you know, to, to make machines that make 3D printers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's, that's an incredibly intensive technological area. Uh, you've got to have, you know, there are so many different techniques now for 3D printing, for example. Some of them, like in the in the aerospace industry, I certainly see a lot of that. Uh, there's a, one particular company that is 3D printing its rockets completely, and including printing the engines. So you you have a very very fine control. You're working with ex, you know, extremely difficult materials to spray uh, to put down at the sort of micron level. Uh, so the companies that are doing that uh, are largely going to be in aerospace, and that's going to direct you towards what's happening, of course, in America, but also China and and to some extent Japan. Mm. Well, Europe, of course, is big in in aerospace as well, and the UK's, you know, a, a chunk of it as well. So, I mean, that's not an industry that's, you know, we're we're totally a, a total outsider in 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 the UK. But do we do we focus on new industries or do we look to old ones? So, forty billion of our imports are cars. Surely, we can just make more cars. Forty billion are phones and electrical goods well it's okay a uk version of the iphone doesn't sound particularly attractive but maybe we could do it 26 billion are pharmaceuticals well the uk is already quite big in that space obviously uh, 17 billion are clothes so do we ramp up our car production do we create that uk version of the iphone do we stop wearing clothes made in asian sweatshops and get them from sweatshops in yorkshire instead um or do we sort of revert a bit to comparative advantage, you know, just a little bit to say, well, OK, there's some things there that will will never be competitive in. It's always going to be sensible to, to import them. Well, I can't avoid the elephant in the room in this one, and that's climate change. What is that going to do to the level of industrialization and what we produce? And uh, on that front, I think any anything which you, you try to have a reindustrialization program where you ignore climate change is going to be a reindustrialization program that stops halfway, if you're lucky, uh, never gets anywhere. You'll have white elephants rather than factories making 3D printers. Right, but, 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 the, but the general question, do we, uh, you know, taking into account climate change, that applies whether we're uh, importing or, or creating domestically. Uh, well, it well, we... actually implies you know, it actually implies more if you're importing because if you're applying an imports of food, for example, and then we have a global famine caused by either you know massive floods, uh, a huge drought, or you know, hailstorms wiping out a production area, that's the most important one to cover. And to me, that's that means that if you know you, the UK's first focus has to be on producing enough food for its people, food self sufficiency. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then after that, it's it's you know. Uh, to maintain a modern society of any description, you're going to need your internet um, to be able to have communications. And you know, if you have to have rationing, you're going to use an internet system for that. So there are. I think that the focus has to be on what Nate Hakens talks about, which he calls the great simplification. Uh, not only are we are finding that you know the relocation of production to third world countries is coming a cropper because of all the supply chain effects. The future world we're going to be in is one where you absolutely have to provide essentials. You have to define what those essentials are, and food is obviously one of them. But so are medicines and and internet and basic electricity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, those of you have what, you, what you've got to remanufacture. Re and, I, you know, I see no, no intelligence on that front whatsoever in any country on the planet. But uh, the problem is, isn't it, things are complicated these days. So if we look at, uh, we look at phone manufacturing, for example, I mean, you could say, well, okay, we're importing a lot of phones. Let's, let's, let's make them ourselves. 
we are going to reach a point where we say, well, okay, uh, we need to, as you said, you know, we need a machine that can bend a wire and we don't have that. So do we buy one in or do we get that job done overseas? We need uh, microchips that we perhaps don't produce or a particular type that we don't produce here. Do we start producing it here? Um and isn't that going to become hellishly expensive? I mean, you start to look at, you know, the, 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 the com- we've got complex supply chains because we've got complex products. Incredibly so complex. is it ever going yeah. to be, is it ever going to be possible to say, well, let's bring all that in house when there's so much complexity? And then you talked about food, which is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we can't produce all our food in the UK, at least not naturally, uh, not without, you know, huge consumption of energy, unless we are quite happy eating cabbage and potatoes all day and maybe carrots because the climate doesn't support you know some of this a lot of the stuff that we want to eat so in some ways we're a bit hamstrung aren't we well and in particular when you take a look at uh, complex products like computer chips because i'm mean, I keep forgetting the name but the initials are for it's ac blah 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 to four initials a dutch company which makes the only machines that makes the make the incredibly uh thin channel uh, you know, micron width and, and, and low. I've really I've lost track with what the the scale is of semiconductor production these days. But there's one Dutch company which small, is a spin-off. Steve. Very small. Uh, one <laughs> one Dutch company which is a spin-off from Philips that makes the only machines uh, that that make chips down to this level. So that's incredible complexity. And now the, the, the China, because of the boycotts, and this is the you're talking about geopolitics a while ago, uh, the mm. geopolitics of America trying to pressure Ch- uh, China over not invading Taiwan, that's the excuse they're using anyway, uh, have banned exports of this particular machine to uh, China. And so the, the Netherlands company is not making the exports, but China says, okay, we'll make the chips ourselves. And they've got the technological foundation to be able to consider building something as complex as you know, as the machines that make chips. Now, if the UK thinks about that, I mean, that almost becomes an episode in Monty Python, frankly. Yeah, the, well, okay, but the UK maybe not, but Europe perhaps. I mean, you, you say well, Europe, Europe, Europe's, Europe's got the company in the first place, so it's got a position. Yeah. But yeah, and like, a, and, at it's least got a, and it's got a population. Yeah. It's got a you know, uh, you, you're throwing people at it, and you're throwing brain power at it. I mean, if Britain saw the sensible side, and I know you and I disagreed on this at the time, but if Europe saw, if if the UK saw saw sense and said, well, actually, we're quite happy to throw ourselves into being back back as part of Europe and having a a, a Europe wide uh, economy with shorter supply chains just within Europe. All of this, you know, that seems insurmountable for the UK would become a realistic proposition, wouldn't it? Well, if you've, got think, you've got to think on a regional basis, and that's that's an important point because, yeah. uh, like the UK, you know, it's only a short distance to the Netherlands. I know that very well. Um, so you, you can have a that particular trading block could produce uh, the, the, these complex ships for itself because you have that company in the Netherlands. China doing the same thing, but America at the moment can't do it. So if you, there, there are levels of, of technology which are beyond, at the moment, beyond even America uh, to, to develop that you know, and become a, a regionalized system. But the basic principle is that we have to look at a future world in which globalization is going out the window and localization is the rule. And then you have to work out ways in which, you know, what's, what number of, what, what population scale is enough to make it feasible to consider producing that. Right. But then you get areas like pharmaceuticals where discoveries are made around the world. I mean, maybe more localization 
would be good in that maybe it will create more innovation. I'm not sure. But I mean, you know, we we had all over the world, everyone was trying to find the solution to how we cope with the COVID virus uh, and come up with the vaccination. And, and the, you know, we obviously there were several versions around the world. Some worked better than others. So maybe, you know, this, this localization or regionalization means that we get uh, a bit more discovery happening because we're all in parallel trying to solve the same problem. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's incredible to see how few companies are central and few factories, frankly, are central to production processes on which the rest of us rely. So the, the classic, of course, is the, you know, the chip manufacturer in the Netherlands. <laughs> I have to look up the name. I've got to learn it, memorize it. Um, uh, but anyway, but also it's it's fertilizer. And where does fertilizer come from? 86% apparently of the world's fertilizer is sourced from Morocco and most of it from one mine in Morocco. Um, so there are there are ways in which if, if this globalization system breaks down, then the prosperity we've taken for granted in the last 40 years falls over very rapidly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, even aside from the, the, the incidences where you know, we reliant on one or two places in the world for a few key components or a few key resources. Uh, prices are generally going to go up. I mean, if we just on you know on the sheer scale of production, uh, it's it's going to be inflationary initially, and then we're going to be left with higher prices generally, which is going to impact our our standard of living, isn't it? That 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 is the upshot out of all of this. Uh, if we put, import more. Uh, now we do it because we're getting a better standard of living. We're going to be saying goodbye to that. Yeah, and like a company, by the way, is ASML. I never get the, the second initial right, ASML. Uh, <laughs> right. So, 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 yeah, it's uh, we, we were going to see inflation coming out of the third factor that sets prices, which is ignored in most conversations. So when you use uh, the best argument for price dynamics is by Mikhail Kolesky. He's, he has a formula involving the markup, uh, money wages, and, and, and the what we call labor productivity, but what really is machinery productivity. And what we're going to see is inflation caused by decline in machine productivity as time goes forward, p- partly because of the breakdown of globalization, breakdown of those supply chains. And then also because localization will be forced upon us and local scale won't support the, uh, the the scale of operations that are global where companies like ASML have got dominance because they're the only one that can make the machinery. Uh, it's going to take a hell of a long time to, re- to replace that capability in countries like America if their particular attitude to China backfires on them. Right. So higher prices, ultimately. That's, I mean, that's all pointing to it, isn't it? And it is. It's economies of scale. For the investment, yeah. In, yeah. same investment, you know, in, heavy investment in machinery, uh, less capacity utilization, really, is, is what we're saying, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, again, this is one of the things where neoclassical economics completely misleads everybody. The garbage idea of the rising marginal costs, which is empirically contradicted by 95% of firms have constant or falling marginal cost, that particularly applies in the computer industry, things like ASML, once you've got an advantage in actually building these machines in the very first instance, you have enormous uh, the, the high, the enormous scale, first of all, enormous scale advantages. And if you increase your sales, you drop your price level, you drop your costs by having your amortizing a fixed capital over a larger number of units. So uh, if you're forced out of that and you go back to the scale where you're amortizing over a smaller number of units, then your costs are going to be higher, period. It's the 
the fixed costs that dominate actual production, not the so-called marginal costs. So that scale can be fixed by regionalization, though, can't it? So, and it doesn't feel beyond the realm of possibility once we've got uh, rid of Jacob Rees, Morgan, people like that who'd put a stop to this sort of thinking. But if we if we had a regional entity within Europe that Britain was part of that said, well, okay, we are going to develop a regional Europe plan, industrial plan, so that we are going to be largely self-sufficient in key industries and we're going to invest in those industries and we'll, you know, there'll be a bit of jiggery-pokery between various countries as to who's best at doing what. Um, but, you know, all of these key areas that are going to drive the future, I mean, Europe could largely, with, okay, with some resources that need to be shipped in if, they, if they're not um, capable of being produced or mined locally, um, Europe could become largely self-sufficient, couldn't it? It's just going to take a bit of time and a heck of a lot of investment from government as well as from private sector. And it'll take governments that think about real stuff like manufacturing rather than worrying about government deficits measured in you know, numbers of pieces of paper with the stamp euro or pound on them. So yeah, they've got to change their thinking somewhat. Yeah, to- and, that's sort of, you know, and, and, and it really, you know, a huge part of it actually will be the whole issue of what we're doing to the climate with the shipping. As you mentioned, the, what the top 19 container vessels uh, generate more CO2 than all the cars on the planet. Incredible. When we realize, holy shit, we've got to do something serious about it, let's get rid of those 19 container vessels. You've, you've eliminated a large part of the carbon dioxide. But to do it, you've got to be able to produce the goods that they're shipping domestically. And that... Uh, you know, that that focus. Uh, we need work. You, we need leaders who are actually want to do something useful rather than want to fear wear funny pants at an interesting party in Davos. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and I'm thinking that you know if we've got a more diversified workforce, I mean we suffer from the problem, don't we, in the UK that we've got uh, the rich getting richer. Uh, you know, the rich poor gap definitely widening. And a, a chunk of that is because of the domination of the finance industry. I mean, if we had more of a mix of jobs rather than being so heavily geared towards services, in particular finance, then that broadening disparity of income uh, would start to disappear. And you'd have a healthier economy as a result of it. You would. And like I've, having lived through parts of the UK education system, uh, I think a system actually spelled in the case of the UK, C-I-S-T-E-R-N, um, it, it, it's, it's incredible how this has been, everything been turned into a monetary profit centre without considering the quality of education and, and the sophistication that you would want to have in a modern modern society. So the, the, there, are, there are certainly you know, good elements of engineering in the UK. I'm not saying there aren't. But the focus upon education as a profit centre rather than education as a skill generation centre uh, has been, again, to the UK's detriment. And again, it's not alone in, in doing that, uh, but it's certainly worse than, say, Europe, for example, where there's a much higher focus upon skill levels. In, if you universities in Germany, uh, most of Europe, in fact, students don't pay fees, and therefore they've got to get a good mark to get a pass. Whereas in the UK, they pay fees, and I've been in meetings where we've been told we're not passing, we're not giving enough first-class honours degrees. Yeah. Well, first thing I do if I was in charge of education would get rid of media studies, doing a degree in media studies, learn it on the job, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, but, you know, do something real uh, with your with your education. But, okay, the other area is, um, you know, importing people. So if Britain or Europe was wanting to uh, grow its and, and diversify its industrial base, should it be worried about its working age population? So, uh 
I don't think we do. So in the UK, the working age population is growing. It's 41.6 million right now. Uh, The growth is slowing. It was 40.2 million in 2010. It was 37 million in 2000. But if we look at OECD figures, uh, they reckon 64% of the UK population is of working age. It's about the same in Australia and Germany. It's 65%, more or less the same in the United States. Uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit higher there because they've got a lower life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Sweden, Sweden, and France are around sixty-one to sixty-two percent, compared to sixty-nine percent in China. So they've they've actually got a higher working age population, but that is coming down. That's down from seventy-three percent not so many years ago. So as we talked about in the introduction, that is starting to change rapidly. It's only fifty-nine percent in Japan. Incidentally, it's about the same in Israel as it is in Japan, about fifty-nine percent. But do we actually need? more working age people or is mechanization going to fix that and actually could we have a smaller working age population could that actually be a good thing because older people are the consumers aren't they the working age people are just there to turn the machines on well i mean one having a good look at the what's happening in, in robotics these days and if you look at the sort of unskilled manufacturing jobs that used to exist, uh, you know, when the UK had a, had a manufacturing sector, uh, it's quite probable a lot of those sh- not jobs anymore will go. Think can be it can be yeah. done by ro- ro- robots because it, 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 I'm I'm no great believer in artificial intelligences. As we talked about, we said when, when I say artificial imagination, I'll take it seriously. But like artificial intelligence, meaning you know that you've got to put that particular uh, thermocouple in that particular hole, uh, even if the machine itself doesn't quite stop right in front of you, which is what a robot can be trained to do, uh, then you replace those skills with the robotics. But then again, you've got to make the robots. And where are you going to import the robots from? Where are you going to make them from? You, so that you, you need the skill level to make the machines that make the machines that make the machines that make the products yeah and so it's not the it's not the size of the working age population it's actually the level of education that you've got and, the, and the level of technology they're working with and the, whether your country has the capacity to produce that technology for itself and again therefore you've got to be training top class engineers top class physicists and chemists Chuck, chuck the economists right. out of the bloody university. They're a waste. They're, they're dangerous. Uh, but you, you, you have to f- and, and teach, teach, teach those engineers a bit of history and art as well. Right. But yeah, but you, if you, you do, but all of that's doable. I mean, if you looked at Europe, I mean, UK, OK, as one country alone is, is too small and too isolated. But if you looked at Europe as a region and the same for the United States, all of it seems doable, doesn't it? If you have, so long as you've got a plan, that's the key thing. Well, so long as you realise what what is actually the issue, and that's again where economics led us off drastically away from what actually matters. Um, but again, I come back to the, what's going to what is climate change going to do to the future society we're going to live in? And Nate's phrase of the great simplification, I think, makes eminent sense. We're going to be finding ourselves dumbing down our uh, production capability, not because we want to, but because we have to. And then focusing upon the absolute basics. And I think a country that doesn't do that, you know, you know, if you're in the situation which I think the UK is in, where it's importing more than thirty percent of its food, and then there's a food crisis caused by a climate uh, event, uh, then it, it doesn't matter what you've got in terms of technology if you can't buy food. So the focus has to be on the absolute basics first and build up the capability to give you resilience in the future. And the whole globalization thing gave you efficiency, but not resilience. And now the efficiency is falling over. Right. Now, everything you're saying is not exactly um, non-mainstream, I don't think. I think uh, this is we are in the realm of very populist politics. So, I mean, Donald Trump is talking 
reindustrialization. It seems to be winning votes in America. Um, it's every chance, in fact, that he's going to be back in power talking about exactly what we've been talking about for the last half hour. In fact, I'm surprised Rishi Sunak and his brigade haven't latched onto it rather than worrying about boats coming across the channel. If he was there saying, we need to become more self-sufficient, we need to reindustrialize Britain, he'd be st staying at number 10 for as long as he wants. Uh, it seems like people support this idea. It is popular politics. We just need to do it. Yeah, and the, the, the whole you know, globalization, comparative advantage nonsense that neoclassicals pushed out really screwed the working class in the countries that fell yeah. for it. And no one's buying it anymore. No one's buying well, it anymore. We've had 40 years of experience of it. I mean, yes, we've got very fancy machines, et cetera, et cetera. We've also got gig economy workers with incredibly, you know, the precariat, as it's called. It's got to work in multiple jobs to be able to pay the rent that they can't afford anymore because that's been driven up by too much private debt. Uh, it is it is the working class has been screwed by the whole process and they're the ones who are voting for people like trump they're not going to vote for sunak unless he wakes up yeah and there's nobody actually uh, doing a trump in the uk that's the problem otherwise they'd be quids in as well uh, oh, please don't. We, <laughs> let's not get nigel back please <laughs> <laughs> well no but he i mean he but he was not saying the same thing was he i mean he was a trump supporter yeah, yeah. but he he wasn't following the the, the trump line at least trump had a pol has a policy uh, and, uh, you know, at least half of it makes perfect sense. All right, very good. We'll leave it there for now. Good to talk, Steve. We'll, uh, we'll catch you again next week. Okay, mate. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.